0: Tonight we are privileged. Phil Brookman is going to be here to speak. We enjoyed him very much last year, and I appreciate him coming to be one of the again this year. He is the preacher of the Memorial World Church of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma. That's the Oklahoma Christian University campus. He has BS in Bible and MS in Bible. MA. Uh, and has been involved in youth ministry and preaching for 10, 15, 20 years. No, 10 years. He's married to Mary and has two beautiful children, which is like what we have to hear about so, Anna and so summer, and Heidi. Though very different pictures. this is what it says on his website, let me tell you. Did you approve this by the way? Okay. It says, he ready to play ping pong and golf, he doesn't know much to read, he's not very good in college, and he doesn't drink much coffee, which i can going to because he doesn't have coffee with him. But growing from his deep passion for God's word and his love of creative teaching, those are credible, biblical sermons. So I hope you are ready to listen to a great sermon on Daniel in that one. Well, thank you, Dad. I have no idea what to say after. Go okay. Oh, well, I'm sure it would be that it's going to require a lot of explanation. is a it? not uh, so it seems. That's coming in later. And here we go. Well, let's rewind that. And start over. What well, I was going to say is I have no idea how to follow the, the frog and hamster. That was, that was pretty good. I didn't know what to know that. But that was really good. No, thanks Thanks so much for having me back uh, this year. I uh, really, really enjoyed uh, coming last. year. really warm Church, you welcomed me, even though you didn't know me, even though I look like I'm 16, you're just very, you're very kind, and so thanks for having me back, and, and you need to make sure to come back next week. Uh, next week, I think you're having Alan Martin, and this is just a warm-up act for Dr. Martin. He was one of my professors when I was OC, and i got got a genius, and he has an accent, and that makes it all the uh, better. So you need to make sure to be here next week to Dr. Martin. But if you are thinking, man, what what is this kid doing on the stage? That's pretty much what people think every week at the church that I preach at. In fact, just three days ago, I was doing a wedding, and i was sitting around waiting for it to start, and uh, the wedding coordinator was running around like crazy and she looked really stressed out and she finally ran over to group of people I was with and I said, You know, what's, what's wrong? Well can we help you? And she like, I can't find a creature. And I was like, I was like that's that's me and she said, Oh, oh I thought you were of and well, well you know, what can you do? So anyway, thanks for thanks for having me back again this year. I, I think I really the theme of the summer really resonates with my heart when it does email me a few months ago my heart just kind of leaped up my chest. Because this I feel like this is so important to God. Cities are so important and that they're in the heart of God. Think about I'm gonna talk about that one this minute in a different book of the Bible, but I think my mind immediately goes to Jeremiah when the people are in captivity and they don't know what to do and God tells them while they're in Babylon, he says, You seek the welfare of that city. And I've always been so convicted by that verse because God loves the city. And you know that when the people of God uh, influence cities, then you can change the world. You think about the way that Paul did his ministry. Paul always went for the big dog cities. He went for Ephesus, he went for Corinth, he went for Rome because he knew if you have to go of the city, you can have to heart of the world. Cities. Are valuable in the eyes of God. Think about the way the Bible ends. The Bible does not end with a scene of all of us floating off up in the and The Bible ends with a scene of the city of God coming down to earth. So cities are in the heart of God. I love the theme this summer of studying um, uh, cities in the Bible and how specifically how they affect MacArthur Park's influence in San Antonio. I wanted to read you a line from one of Deb's emails to me that I love. The life of this, how the life of God interacts with urban humanity, and what MacArthur Park Church of Christ can do for our city. That's a great theme for summer. We're going to start with that off. and so you have a Bible turn over to Daniel chapter 1, that's where we'll begin just this moment. I need to tell you about this picture that you've already seen on the screen. So, a few months ago, a group of friends and I, a small group I met at Memorial Road. Normally we do a Bible study time and prayer time, but this particular week we decided to take a break and we were going to go do something fun. So we chose to go to main event or any main events around this area. Okay, so we went to main event. We're playing around. At one point we I get a text message with this picture, which here's what's going on. We're about to play a game of pool builders and I had gone up to get the cool sticks which happened to be at the bar. And so my friends saw this as a great opportunity to blackmail the preacher at a Church of Christ. And so uh, one of my friends Jacob snapped this picture without me knowing it and then later in the evening he texted the picture to me and the captain said, Bill be careful, I can blackmail you anytime that I want. Now I show you this picture and ask the question: What exactly is the tension in a picture where a preacher is at a bar? Now, a couple ways to answer that question. What I'm going to get at is the tension of this picture is how exactly is a Christian supposed to engage culture? There are certain parts culture which are great, there are certain worlds culture which are simple. And and a question that many people wrestle with is to what extent should a Christian engage in culture at large. And I think that the greatest place in the Bible to answer this particular question is the book of Daniel. Because what you find in the book of Daniel is you find Daniel and his friends have been transported from Israel into this pagan country, and they have to wrestle with How do we be the people of God when we are in the greatest pagan city in the world? So the whole book is wrestling with this question. What do you do? And my ministry experience, I have found that there's a whole lot of people that are in this world. They love Jesus, love the church, love the Word of God, and yet they have friends. That engage in certain behaviors and they don't know to what extent they should do these things and still be faithful to Jesus, and so there's tension. You either experience this tension in your own life, or you've got kids, or grandkids, or friends who are right in the middle of this tension. What do I do? In fact, just yesterday, that girl who uh, grew up on Memorial Road, was in our campus ministry for many years, left for college. She came by to see me yesterday, her her story basically go like this. She went uh, to uh, had a Christian, had a very strong faith, went off, got a job in the coach, and totally embraced the kind of secular lifestyle, got things she shouldn't be getting into. When she came to Tommy yesterday, she never used to cuss. She was cussing. And as we talked about kind of why she changed so much, one of the things that she said really caught my attention. She said, Bill, I'm really different now. My faith has changed, my morals have changed, I'm a different person. And the reason is, I can't relate to the people in the city where I was in unless I adopt this lifestyle. Now, a lot of people would say that that's a, that's a great argument. And what I would do is try to address to what extent should we engage in culture in order to reach culture. You know, Paul says in one of the letters, i like, become all things, all men, so that I'll possibly even like, say something. So, a lot of people said, well, because Paul becomes all things, that means, well, sure, I should be able to adopt somewhat shady lifestyles in order to reach these people. It's a difficult question to know how far we should go. And Daniel is a great book to answer this question. And the city of Babylon is a great city to start with. The city of Babylon was known for a lot of terrible, terrible things. So, here's the background to this, this letter. Nebuchadnezzar has just coming into Israel and destroyed the, 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 the temple he desecrated the land and he's starting to haul the people off to Babylon so we read in oh I didn't get money back up here or, or, this is a great one more way to illustrate this tension James 4.4 4. anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God I should say John. John 3.16, I'm going type that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So on the one hand, you have a passage which said, God loves the world. On um, the other hand, you have a passage which said, if you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. And so somewhere in the middle of these two sentences, like a lifestyle in which the contemporary Christian should live to engage the world today in a relevant way to be faithful to the gospel. So, here's what happening in Daniel chapter 1. Then king ordered after Mass, and let's see, I'll show you what's green. Then the king ordered after Mass, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Among those who were chosen were from Judah, Daniel, Hanani, and I. Bishael and Azariah. So, Nebuchadnezzar's is coming in, and, and part of the people he brings are Daniel and his friends. Now, so I would say that they're probably late teenagers or early twenties when they get to Babylon. And so, I mean, imagine their world. We think that it's a struggle today to be a Christian in what many people call post Christian America. Well, imagine what it's like for them. They're trying to be Israelites when there's no more Israel. They're trying to follow God, but they don't really even have a home anymore. I mean, think about this. They're they're used to a certain way of life. They're used to certain rituals. They're used to the Israelite calendar. They don't even have the Israelite calendar anymore. They're in Babylon. So there is no Sabbath day because Babylon doesn't operate in that mode. there a the temple; they can't offer sacrifices the temple. So this is not like they're in the wilderness. When yeah, it's not the greatest situation, but at least you can somewhat still practice your faith, even if you know you're in a dry, dark place. This is we its totally opposite. How are you supposed to be the people of God again when you're when you're removed from your home? And so that's what Daniel and his friends are trying to figure out. Child sacrifices rampant in Babylon. Pagan worship is everywhere. This is Party City. This is Polytheism central, and they gotta figure out what they're gonna do. So generally, a few options are gonna be option one: will be there and in the offense, fight, ticket, riot, stand up for their beliefs in that way, or they're gonna be And withdraw and deny the culture that is in front of them. So I want you to watch how the story plays out. Really interesting what happens when they get there. So verse 4 says, one of the king's officials, that's he, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So, right when Daniel and his friends get to Babylon, they immediately are ushered into Babylon University. And because Babylon was such an influential culture of their day, archaeologists have actually discovered a substantial amount of information telling us what Babylon would have taught Daniel and his friends. So, here's an example of things that we've learned in Babylon in school. First of all, they would have gone the language class and learned the, the language of the day, before was the, the language called Akkadian. So they would have been fluent in the language of Babylonians. Secondly, it is very likely that they would have had classes in Babylonian literature containing or pertaining towards Babylon's uh, most, most famous practice of the day, which was divination. Archaeologists have found lots of documents telling us that. The thing that Babylon did the most was they taught people how to study the stars and patterns of the stars and study uh, bird patterns. Uh, specifically, they would look at litters of sheep and they would take all this information and they would attempt to predict the future. Now, that sounds really strange but they'd no, no, there's no way that Daniel and his friends are going to learn that. That's, uh, think about this. They're in Babylon and they're learning from a Babylon professor. So it's very likely that these are the kinds of things that they're learning uh, based on this verse. So the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Or another, another evidence which leads us to think that this probably happened is throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is compared to the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers of the king. Now, even though they have to believe the way they do, that's his contemporaries. So it's very likely that he went these things in the school of Babylon. second thing that happened when Daniel and his friends were in Babylon is that the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the names of Shadrach, the name of Eliash, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So not only do they have to go to Babylonian schools, they get their names changed into names of Babylon. Now this is where I would have said, oh, you know, you can, you can do all the me, but he doesn't know that to change my name, and yet they get Babylonian names. Here's the first thing that happens: they enter the king's service. So here's what they do: they actually get jobs in the Babylonian government. They are not just Israelite exiles; they become Babylonian bureaucrats. The archaeologists also found documents which tell us what officials in of the government did. They. They uh, collected taxes, they made judicial decisions, and they recruited for the military. That's in general, of the people in the Babylonian government did. And so, day in, day out, Daniel and his friends, born Israelites, are now educated in Babylon with Babylonian names, working for the man that just burned down the temple. It's very strange. Think about it that way. Two things fascinating me from this chapter. The first thing that fascinates me is this. We find no indication that Daniel and his friends resist any of these things. They don't resist the name change. Uh, they don't skip classes when they're going to school or if the text doesn't tell us that. Uh, they don't be in arguments with their professors when obviously their professors would have been teaching them things. Uh, in total contradiction to the Torah. The Bible doesn't say that there are any arguments. The Bible also does not say that they went on riots. In their jobs doesn't say they tried to assassinate the king. In fact, they got promoted in their jobs, which means they were doing a good job in the Babylonian government. That ought to mean that they did not resist. Now, the second thing that fascinating to me, even more for the fact that they didn't resist this new world, is that God didn't punish them. Later the book God uh, punished at all Nebuchadnezzar. And then still another place in the book, God punishes one of the other kings, but he does not punish Daniel and his friends for engaging in Babylonian culture. So here's what I want to suggest at the beginning of our time tonight, that we might be able to learn from this, culture in itself is not inherently evil. It is there easy to believe that everything bad in the world is all developed into one big bad word called culture, and that's something that we as Christians should not like? That's not necessarily the case in Daniel. Culture is simply the art and the way of life and the practices for a particular people at a certain point in history. Now, here, here, here's what's really going on. There's always sin within culture but culture itself is not sinful. And so if you were ask the question, does this culture contain sin? Well, the answer would be yes. All cultures contain sin. But if you were ask the question, is any culture itself sinful? Well, not necessarily. I think about the life of Jesus. Jesus went to weddings, he went to dinner, went to parties, he went fishing and paid his taxes. He was engaged in his culture. So, can we say safely that there were certain parts of Palestinian culture that were sinful? Yes. Would it be accurate to say that all of Palestinian culture was sinful in itself? No. Culture itself is not evil, but there are evil parts of any culture. So, one thing that Christians tend to do if they're not careful about it is they become so appalled by certain things that happen in culture that they abandon it oh, altogether. Yeah. It would be that Daniel and his friends get to Babylon and they don't like what they're learning in their school, they don't like the language, they don't like the names, they don't like the jobs, and so they say, we can't do this, we're in life, we are glorifying it all, we're done. But they don't do that. They realize that culture itself is not evil. Some of us are so afraid of contamination that we opt for inoculation. And doing that does not necessarily do any good for the world that we live in. You see, to retreat from culture just because you're afraid of it is to retreat from the creativity of God. Now, if you take this point that I'm suggesting at the beginning of this lesson out to its fullest extent, you get to a very dark, bad place. Because what you could say. If you stop listening to the rest of my message, this is it. You just talk the first half. Anybody can leave the room and make this argument. Daniel and his friends embrace Babylonian culture. Therefore, I have the freedom to embrace any part of sinful culture in this country, in this city, because I want to reach this city. You can use the talking on the screen that culture is not inherently evil to justify immorality. That's what the girl in my office was doing yesterday. She was saying, well, I'm trying to reach people, therefore I'm going to adopt practices that I don't think God approves of because I want to reach these people. I'm not necessarily sure if that's the best way to think about this idea that culture is not inherently evil. Here's an example of that. In the 1920s, German nationalism was kind of at the heights. Uh, the country of Germany had just celebrated the 400 year anniversary of Martin Luther, in the 95 thesis on, on the door and, and uh, starting the, the, the Reformation movement. And so, German 1920, uh, we were in the 1920s thought we were the best, we we're, were the best people in the world. And so, out of German nationalism came the movement of Nazis. Now, the Holocaust hadn't happened. Nazis didn't have the negative stigma that they do today, which is a movement trying to, um, just take pride in the country of Germany. Now, there were Christians at the time who wrote the Bible and believed that God loved all races racist people. Well, Christians, many thousands of Christians were asked to become Nazis. And so they were put in a very similar situation as Daniel in the race. We believe the Bible. We believe Jesus. We believe the all people are created equal, and yet Nazism seems to be holding up that German are somehow superior. So what do we do? Well, Christians generally chose two different tracks. One group of Christians said, we can't adopt the ideals of Nazism because we believe they are a contradiction of Scripture, and so they do not become Nazis. But other Christians did is that for this on? Yeah. yeah. So this is a flag. DC stands for Deutsch uh, Christiano, and that basically means uh, Christian Nazis. And so the second group of Christians decided that the only way we can reconcile this is that we don't really agree with the principle of Nazism, but the culture's doing it. And so we are doing the work of the ostracized, so the only thing that we can do is join it. So that we we'll their watch. And you might say, well, that's an extreme example. I would never become a Nazi, I would never become a racist, there's just no way I would ever do that. Well, I would argue back to that that the same logic which led Christians to embrace Nazism would be the same logic for me in my life which would lead me to embrace something like uh, materialism. Now, it's not as drastic that we would think of it as sin, but think about it. The logic that caused Christians to embrace not Jews was very, very simple. The logic simply goes like this. Culture is embracing X. Therefore, if I don't embrace X, I will be drinking. And so we can think about like we're a materialistic culture. And so we are not we're, we're on the materialistic word we're on the outside, we're the strangers. So many times Christians adopt any moral principles because they're trying to fit in with culture. So fully totally embracing culture is not the best option either. So, so where do we kind of where do we go from here? Well, I want you to look back at this story of Daniel because Daniel and his friends do some really interesting things in the first few chapters. For example... Daniel 1 verse 8. Daniel, who has this Babylonian education, Babylonian language, Babylonian job, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So here you find a clear line. Daniel said, you know what? I'm okay understanding the literature and the language, but I know the that if I eat the king's food, that's the same as accepting his lordship. I will not do that. I'm drawing the line. And so, yes, Daniel writes his culture, but here's a case where he says, nope, not going to cross that line. Chapter 3, Chatter, and you check the video. They're standing before this idol, this really big idol. King says, everybody needs to bow down. When the trumpets play, the trumpets play, everybody bows down except these three men. And you can see their silhouettes standing as everybody kneels down. And what do they say about that? They say, we will not serve your gods. And we will not worship the image of the soul that Jesus has set up. And if you remember later in the story, they say, even if we die, even if we die, we're not going to give up this standard. And so once again, you see, yes, they are in some way embracing the culture they live in, but in other way they have some really clear boundaries about what they value. They're not going to eat the king's food, and they're not going to bow down to that statue. That another example would be, oh, not a verse, this one, but another example would be. Daniel prayed what? Daniel prayed every day. King said, don't pray. Daniel says, no way. I'm going to be praying There's nothing you can do, Cain, to stop me from praying. And that's another boundary for Daniel. says I'm not going to cross this line. And so what we find here is that Daniel and his friends fully embraced culture, but they did not fully embrace sinful culture. In fact, they were so committed to their values that they would rather walk into a lion's den or surrender a body to the plains than even flirt with something they knew would disappoint their God. So they were extremely convicted. So here's what we learned: kind of putting it all together. Were Daniel and his friends fully immersed in Babylonian culture? The answer to that would be yes. They knew language, they were educated, they had jobs in the Babylonian government, they didn't live in denial, they didn't shy away from the culture around them. But, were they corrupted by it? No. And so then the next question then is, how did Daniel and his friends engage Babylonian culture without being corrupted by it? because that is the world we live in today. And that's the tension that we have to figure out. How do we fully engage the world, fully engage the culture, fully engage the city, without being corrupted by it? And here's what they did. This is the one thing that I, I want you to remember what these guys did. Their spiritual commitment preceded their cultural engagement. Same with 39, if we ever hope to Make a difference in the city, you have to live according to this principle. Your spiritual commitment has to come before your cultural engagement. And the order here is so important. I mean, think about Daniel and the friends. Do you think that Daniel decided, like, right then, when, when the food was coming out to be served and it smelled really good? Do you think it was like a decision on the wind, like, ah, maybe I shouldn't eat this shrimp from the king? Maybe I wouldn't like that. That wasn't a momentary decision. That wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. Daniel was committed way before that. He had already decided that he would follow God way before King's food came out. Same thing is true with chapter eight. Trying to on the idolies. Do you really think that, that on that day the idols up and the instruments start blowing and they kind of look at each other and think, like, oh Well, what should we do? Should we back? Should we not that No, there is no question because they were already spiritually committed. That came first. you think Daniel waited until the law, was passed before he got to it? Whether or not to pray, he was already going to pray. The spiritual engagement came way before the cultural engagement, and that's the only way that these guys were able to, to stand up for out in Babylon. In other words, Daniel was committed in the lion's den because he was committed in the living room First. You see, gone a lot of talking about know, working with company for seven years, and one of the common things that I would talk to about then, and their parents would be so upset about it, is that they really wanted to engage that party lifestyle, and they would think, look, I'm just doing this for help. I'm I'm going to help my friends, and be just has to driving around showing me the influenced around those people, and I thought, what Are the closest friends in your life Christians? And they said, no, they're not Christians. I would just say, you got it wrong. Jesus' was closest friends were his disciples, and because he was so committed there with those relationships, that gave him the authority to go out there and go into the world and, and love them. But, but if you're not spiritually committed first, culture will eat you for lunch. Like it's mean, over. Like there's no question. If it it's not first, then you're going to be like the person in my office yesterday. You, you can't handle culture if you're not spiritually committed first. And that's what being one of his friends teach us. Culture's not that. Culture's fine. But if you're not spiritually committed, it's over. You're done for. It. Some people want to engage the world, like I was just saying, but they don't have any commitment. They couldn't say no to the temptation if their life dependent on it. And with those people, I just wonder, what are you doing? If you're trying to engage culture without being spiritually committed, it's just like spiritual suicide. It's over. Now, the reverse is also true, and this is a really important one. I want you to hear this. There are also some people who are extremely committed to God. People who really would give their lives and the fire return of Jesus Christ. People who look at their minds in because of their belief system. And yet these people will not engage culture because they're scared. And I would argue that it is those kinds of people who are the very ones who should engage culture. Culture must be engaged by spiritually committed people. So it does the church no good if the only way that committed people engage culture is to complain about it to each other. The church I worship at is not a perfect church. We have a lot of strengths, we have a lot of weaknesses, and sometimes one thing that bothers me is it seems that we have more people complaining about the of the culture they don't like rather than engaging that culture in the name of Jesus Christ. See, there's hundreds of people at the church I work at, those are the committed Christians that need to be out in the world. I don't want my waffling teenagers and are waffling college students out there in culture because that culture is going to eat it for lunch. People that I don't have in culture. Are the people who can stand up and know that, that no matter what happens, the faith is not going to be effective. We need spiritually committed people to go to the difficult places in the city and do something in the name of Jesus Christ. Because if it's not the committed people doing it, who's going to do it? Again, we're, we're do it. Right. it has to be committed Christians. And we can't sit around and just complain about it and it do anything. You see, the irony is, committed people tend to withdraw. That's a bad idea. Uncommitted people tended to engage. That's terrifying. But do you know what happens when spiritually committed people practice intentional cultural engagements? I'll tell you what happens. Culture begins to transform. Look what happened in the story Look what happened in the city of Babylon. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. After Daniel and the Alliance, and King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language on the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. The whole culture changed. And it wasn't because Daniel and his friends held up a poster board against something that they didn't like. wasn't because they rioted. wasn't because they passed around and changed email the things they despised towards people just like them. It's because in simple ways, they were spiritually committed people who stood up in a culture. That's all they did. They just stood there in the middle of simple sinful culture and said, I'm still going to believe in Jesus not going to eat that food, not going to bow down your aisle, still going to pray. That's thought they did. They just stood where they were as spiritually committed people in the dark world and culture transformed because of them. You see, the thing the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is that Christianity is culture-less. There's no defining culture in Christianity. And that's different than any religion. talk about Islam, well, the center of Islam would be the city of Mecca. That's where it finds its culture. Buddhism finds its culture in India, that's where it of centers. Judaism finds its culture in Israel because the geographical center is there. Think about Christianity. There is no geographical location for Christianity from which the culture is derived. It started in the original battle of the center of Christianity. 480 AD, moved to Rome. A few hundred years later, the center of Christianity moved to Europe. In the 1800s, the Christianity moved to America. And even in the last 34 years, mythologists are suggesting that the center of Christianity is moving away from North America into Africa and Asia, with missionaries from those places now coming to visit the United States to deal with the apathetic culture here. So what I'm saying is that Christianity and culture less. And so what that means is that the beauty of Christianity is that it is designed to transform whatever culture it finds itself in. So it, it originated in Jewish culture and said, you know what? Christianity can change Judaism to make Judaism the greatest thing it can be. So we don't just have Judaism, we now have Jewish Christians. Well then the big question of the New Testament is, well, 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 can we have a culture that's not Jewish? That's still Christian? And you read your all false letters and the answer yes. Christianity is big enough to go outside Judaism. now we can break these Gentiles and we can have another culture that's Christian. And over and over and over through the centuries, Christianity has traveled the world and transformed cultures into the greatest that they could be. See, Christianity does not eradicate culture. Christianity transforms culture into the best that it could possibly be. So one, one story to illustrate that point, and then I'll, I'll wrap that up. I do a wedding about a year year and a half ago, and, and uh, at the reception, the groom's father said a prayer. And the groom's father would tell me to kind of strange he shut up late to the wedding, saying he would very tall man, and he looked just like you would picture a native American from a movie. He, you know, broad chest, broad shoulders, long uh, jet black hair coming down through his waist, broad nose, hands skin, narrow eyes. And he walks into this reception, and he grabs a microphone, and he asks everybody to bow in prayer. And he begins praying, and the first probably two to three minutes of his prayer was just like any other prayer be ever hear from a, from just a Christian, dear God, dear, so some so and some blessed son's marriage and then at a certain point in the middle of the prayer he changed. And actually it was kind of freaked me out because what he did is he starts chanting in his Native American language. And I'm like I'm kind of my eyes thinking, I'm like, what is happening around here? The am the speaking in tongues, like, I don't know what is going on here. I'm really uncomfortable. I, I'm personally uncomfortable with it So he ended up coming in there and made some speck in English, and they end up a prayer. So later that day, I pulled the room aside, because I don't know the father, and I, I just said, you've got to tell me what happened during that prayer. And I don't really get he said He said, well, my family comes from generations and generations of Native Americans. And for centuries, my ancestors worshipped Mother Earth, and we worshipped spirits, we were kind of a pantheistic, uh, uh, we, we it was a pantheistic religion. He said, uh, and there were missionaries in, in centuries ago coming and trying to get us to Christians, but we, we all, my, my ancestors were all always say, oh, well, you don't want that. But then the group said, about 50, 60 years ago, some missionaries came into my tribe. And they're approaches And they came in, and instead of saying, you need to stop being Native Americans and start being Christians, they said things hey, like, so I see that you worship the creator of earth. Well, let me His name is and Yahweh, and there's one, and he made the whole world. And he made the very visual that he practiced as Native Americans. And he actually sent his son Jesus to come and, and bring the people to relationship with the creator of earth. And so these really smart missionaries have come in, and instead of trying to rob them of their culture, instead they said, you know what, Jesus can make you all the greatest Native Americans ever. That was your bitch. And so 50 years ago, these Native Americans who for centuries have said, no, we don't want Jesus, we don't want Jesus, we don't want Jesus, finally said, we want Jesus. And so now the group and whole family have to become Christians. Now they're Native American. Christians, they believe in Jesus, they believe in God, they believe in the Bible, they believe so many of the things that you would believe, but they were not in their culture. And he told me that story I was so convicted because sometimes in my life I think that everybody in the world needs to become a white, like, Anglo Saxon European person to be a Christian. That's not the case. Christianity is cultureless, and so our job is to engage the culture we find ourselves in in the name of Jesus Christ. See, San Antonio has its own culture. And my heart, my heart is here at this time, in this place, for one reason, and that is to bring the name of Jesus into this city. Not to tell everybody that you have to change everything about your life. Just to say, the sinful parts about your life do need to change, but you can keep your culture. Because Jesus is not opposed to culture. I'll end with one of my favorite verses from Revelation. It's talking about the city of God coming out at the end of time. And if you remember all the imagery there, the streets are gold, and, and it's just this emerald, it's just an amazing imagery in Revelation 21. But there's one particular line which I think really, really captivates me. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Talking about the city of God in time. So the way I imagine that in my mind is that the greatest parts of every culture in the history of the world will be there in heaven. They're be there in the new world. Because is not against culture. He loves culture, but he's waiting for Christians to be spiritually engaged first, spiritually committed first and then to engage their culture. So my question that I leave you with is, at this point in your life, do you feel like God is calling you to commit to Him, or do you think God is calling you to engage this city? Thank you.